my name is Katie Hessel. I'm an art historian and the founder of an Instagram account called The Great Women Artists, which celebrates female artists on a daily basis, ranging from young graduates to old masters. To tell you a bit of background about the account, I started it seven years ago in October 2015, after I had been studying the work of an artist called Alice Neal. She was an American portrait artist whose life ran almost concurrently with the 20th century and never discriminating, she painted people ranging from Andy Warhol to her landlord son, Benjamin. But it was the first time <clears throat> I really thought about the underrepresentation of women artists. I was at university at the time and how Neal not only fought to be a portrait painter amongst those working in post-war New York City uh, when abstract expressionism was all the rage, but a woman in a man's world. Alice was also the painter of the late and great feminist art historian, Linda Nochlin, who's pictured here with her daughter, Daisy, who penned the essay, Why Have There Been No Great Women Artists?, which really kick-started the feminist art movement in 1971, and is obviously the name that my blog cites. But my idea for the account really came to an existence after visiting an art fair seven years ago, almost the day, when I realised that out of all the works in front of me, not a single one was by a woman. But then I asked myself, I asked myself, I asked myself a series of questions. Could I name 20 women artists off the top of my head? Could I name 10 pre-1950, any pre-1850? The answer was no. Was I, had I essentially been studying and looking at art history from a male perspective? The answer was yes. I was shocked and I thought that starting an Instagram-based blog, like any millennial art historian, would challenge me to find a different woman artist every day, but also put my knowledge to good use and tell the stories about these artists who are so extraordinary. Because after all, they weren't in galleries, they weren't in museums, they weren't in the history books, yet women artists have been artists, women have been artists for centuries. But the night of the art flare, I couldn't sleep. Frustrated about what I just witnessed, I typed the words women artists into Instagram and nothing appeared. So my blog was born. Adopting an accessible style, my aim was then as it is now to appeal to anyone of any art historical level. I don't mind if you've never even stepped inside a museum or, or gallery. It's, it's about embracing the subject and giving it access to the masses. But it's not that I believe there to be anything inherently different about work created by artists of any particular gender. It's more that society and its gatekeepers have always prioritized one group. Because when the statistics remain so shocking, it is vital for this to be addressed and challenged. Because if I asked you in the audience today who you thought the names who defined the canon were, I'm sure many of you would recognise those images that we see on our screen. Botticelli, Van Gogh, Pollock and Warhol. But what if I asked you these names? How many of these names would you recognise? Gentileschi, Krasner, Asawa, Kulwitz, Gluck. If I hadn't actively been studying women artists for the last seven years, I doubt I would know more than a fraction of these names. Because still in 2022, just 1% of the London's National Gallery's collection is made up of women. London's Royal Academy, the institution, are yet to host a solo exhibition by a woman in their main space. And of course, when we look at the monetary value we place on women in society, it comes as no surprise with the gender pay gap that the highest price fetched at auction by a living woman artist has gone for just 12% 
of the highest price of a man at auction. And of course, the so-called introductory Bible to art history, Gombrich's The Story of Art, a book I grew up reading and loving at the time. I still do. It's a wonderful book. But it has one very significant flaw. It failed to mention in its first edition in 1950, a single woman. And only in its 16th edition, 16th revised edition, did it include one woman. That was Katakolwitz from the German Expressionism. So when the story of art is essentially the story of art without women, I thought I'd write the story of art without men. Now, this is not a definitive history. It would be an impossible task. But I'm looking to break down the canon I have so often been confronted by. The canon of art history is global. But when the male Western canon narrative is so unjustly dominant, at the expense of others, it is this that I unpack and challenge. Beginning in the 1500s and ending with those who are defining the 2020s, this book is divided into five parts, which each focus on significant shifts or moments in art history. To avoid artists ever being seen as the wife of, the sister of, the muse of, the daughter of. For example, why when we go and see a Dormar exhibition at Tate Modern, does Picasso's paintings have to fill so much of it? I have situated, because of this, I have situated women artists within their social and political context in the time in which they lived. While I have grouped artists within established movements for the purpose of clarity, I'm keenly aware that artists are not the products of categories, but rather individuals with varied careers who spearheaded key changes in styles. Because who were the women of the Baroque? Impressionism, abstract expressionism, working in the 70s, 80s and 90s and defining contemporary art today. What is this? My 500 page book, which appears here in all of it. So to give you a sort of whistle-stop tour, I'd like to introduce you to three must-know artists from across history which, who feature in my book, starting with one of my favourites, Artemisia Gentileschi. I'll have you know she was the first historic artist at the National Gallery ever staged an exhibition, a solo exhibition of, and that was as recently as 2020. Gentileschi appears in part one of the book, paving the way 1500 to 1900. Beginning in the Renaissance, in this part, we explore the triumphant artist who took on large-scale commissions, pioneered photography, worked in quilt making, scientific advancements, etc. Because unlike Gombrich, I also want to deconstruct the canon by including multiple art forms and to not put any hierarchy between the art forms. Because being an artist, and a woman has never been easy. And in the 16th and 17th centuries, when leading male artists were sort of tackling five meter high um, marble sculptures and painting entire chapels in fresco, women and were often termed virtuosi. Women, by simply by simple virtue of their gender, received no such thing. As time progressed, attitudes did not. It took until the 1890s for women, especially in Britain, to be admitted to the life where they could study the nude from life. Because until that point, the role of women in the history of art had been at best a curiosity. During the Victorian age, dealers were actually known to scratch out a woman artist's name and replace it with her male contemporary. Um, it took until the 20th century, many until actually the 21st century, for them to be recognized by art historians. 
And this was the case with Artemisia Gentileschi. So Gentileschi was born in 1593. She was associated with the Baroque movement, most active at the cusp of the 17th century that recalled biblical tales infused with theatricality, stunning light effects and often blood ridden and psychological scenes. In her lifetime, she became an international celebrity, but she also had the advantage of being raised in an artistic family, growing up in her father's studio in Rome, meaning she could copy from paintings and have access to pigments. Many women artists pre-20th centuries were the daughters of artists as a result. Gentileschi signed and dated her first known work when she was just 17. It is this work on the left of the screen, Susanna and the Elders from 1610, a towering work consumed with drama, which recalls the tale of the young virtuous Susanna bathing in her garden when two lecherous men try and seduce her. I don't know about you, but when I see this painting, I'm filled with sort of anguish and discomfort. Um, the artist, she captures that tense moment when Susanna is shielding her body away from the intruders. But the thing is, the Susanna um, subject was popular for the time because it sort of it was a way, an excuse for the semi-nude Susanna. But unlike so many male artists who, de who depicted Susanna in this more sexualized male gaze, what Artemisia did, she almost give, gives insight into what life was like for a woman in 17th century Rome. But life for Gentileschi was not easy. In 1611, when working in her father's studio, she was raped by Agostino Tassi, an artist friend of her father, something that was resulted in an excruciating seven-month trial where she was forced to prove her innocence. Despite a guilty verdict after being protected by the Pope, Tassi avoided punishment and Gentileschi moved to Florence. But it was here where she thrived, creating her best and most powerful work. This is seen in her triumphant and vivid portrayals of Judith slaying Holofernes. Artemisia Gentileschi was a fantastic storyteller and actually shifts the story, which in the original story had Judith had, had her maidservant keeping watch. But what we see here in this fantastic work from 1620, she painted it once in 1612 and 1620, is actually these two women working together, almost butchering this man's neck like a piece of meat. I mean, it's just visceral and amazing. The next artist I want to spotlight is Lee Krasner. She features in part three of the book, Post-War Women, which, which began in 1945. Because after the devastation of the Second World War, the question becomes, what is the role of art? What is the role of an artist? And how could the visual form be used to make sense of this time? Because how could art help process the horrors endured during the Holocaust or the bombing of Hiroshima? Because if the post-war years were about rebuilding, then the arts were in dire need, in dire need of rethinking too. Artists of this era were faced with incomprehensible. They dismantled representation and turned to abstract forms. They filled their canvases with swathes of movements of expression, but also with the minimalist, pared it back to its most minimal. They revolutionized not what just art could look like, but our interaction, art and their interaction with it too, with the birth of performance art. This period was really experimentalism at its greatest. So in this section, we begin with the abstract expressionists and Lee Krasner. Ambitious, bold, full of action and gesture, abstract expressionism is a term loosely applied to artists working in downtown New York City in the 1940s and 50s, a movement that marked the entry point to America's avant-garde. Lee Krasner was born in 1908 in Brooklyn to a working class, or working class orthodox family. 
and she was formidably independent and outspoken. But like so many of her contemporaries, Krasner had the breakthrough moment when MoMA, formerly known as the Modern, opened in 1929. Because you've got to think, these kids had never even traveled to Europe. And to see wit and witness the French modernists in the flesh, as opposed to seeing them in these tiny black and white reproductions, was extraordinary. And the impact was vast. After being confined to her the smallest spare bedroom when married to her famous male artist husband, Jackson Pollock, it was actually after his death that Krasner was able to move into his barn, as we see here, this fantastic picture here. And it was here that she was able to thrive, making work that was momentous, vast. You can feel almost these sort of somersaulting shapes of her body rolling around in this canvas. But her emotions can be felt through the pressure of this brush. And actually in the, the eye as the first cycle, circle, this work is from her umber paintings, which is when she was forced to work under artificial light because she suffered from insomnia. So to refrain from using color, she actually worked in this umber tone. And actually what we see here is this, she gives life to expression and movement. In 1965, she had her first major retrospective at London's Whitechapel Gallery and in 1984 was honoured with a solo exhibition at MoMA but died six months before the opening. Leaving an incredible legacy and a formidable energy, Krasner embodied the liberal woman. She said, I was a woman, Jewish, a widow and a damn good painter and a damn good painter, thank you and a little too independent. Now let's head to Britain in the later 20th century. In this section, we look at part four. Fueled by the activism of the 1970s, this era marked a revolutionary time for women. Protesting their outrageous treatment at the establishment, women responded by coming together campaigning for their rights and actuating change, forming feminist-focused educational programs and staging all women exhibitions. Women artists expanded ideas around conceptualism and performance art while simultaneously dismantling the traditional art spaces. For example, they took their work to the public space or to the land as opposed to these patriarchal or these museums embedded in patriarchy. The monumental progress they made during this time in the 1970s and 80s made a lasting impact that not only propelled them into mainstream recognition, but forced the white male art establishment to sit up and listen. Because after all, the Guerrilla Girls, the New York-based um, art feminist-focused activist artist collective, asked in 1989, do women have to be naked to get into the Met Museum? Because as we see here, less than 5% of the artists in the modern art sections are women, but 85% of the nudes are female. But over in Britain, with rising unemployment rates, the destruction of the union, the premiership of Margaret Thatcher, and a growing right-wing conservatism, a group of young, defiant artists exploded onto the British art scene, who would be collectively come to be known as the Black Arts Movement. And spearheading this was Lubaina Hamid. Training as a theatre designer in the 1970s, drawn to the medium for its power in her words to make revolutionary statements and multi-layered performances, she also uses theatre design and that kind of set-like atmosphere to disrupt white-walled gallery spaces. From the very start, Hamid's art has sparked conversations about identity and hidden histories. 
Some of Hamid's best known works are her communities of freestanding painted collaged life-size cutouts. Taking a swipe at the bigoted politicians of Thatcher's government, Hamid constructed a fashionable marriage in 1986, a brilliant satire of the leaders of the day directly influenced by William Hogarth's A Fashionable Marriage uh, and his caricatural portrayals of the 18th century aristocracy. And here we can see her presenting Margaret Thatcher as the reprehensible countess. Despite Lubaina's triumphant work and timely work, it took until 2017 for her to be awarded as the first and only woman of colour and first person over 50 of the But despite the progress made in recent years, we still have a long way to go. After all, when the Gorilla Girls revisited their Met Museum stats in 2012, they found out that less than 4% of the artists in the modern art sections are women, but 76% of the nudes are female. Thank you very much.